Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey, everyone. This is episode 40, four zero. Uh, somehow we've made 40 of these episodes and I want to thank all of the guests who've been on to help us reach this milestone. Today is a warrior story and we're talking to Teresa Ramakrishnan. She's a therapist based out of California and a single mom by choice at 51. Um, today's conversation is incredibly complex and incredibly deep. We talk about so many topics, um, some of which we have not talked about yet, and some of which we have kind of glossed over maybe at some points. Although, as you know, my episodes are long, so maybe we don't really gloss over them. But we can always talk longer, I feel like, um, whenever we have these episodes. Um, but today we talk about the struggle of staying true to your desires your authentic self, in your quest for parenthood. We talk about what it's like to go through divorce and IVF simultaneously. Um, we talk about dual donor conception and the challenges of parenting at 50 plus, the questions that you ask yourself, the questions you may continue to ask yourself, um, and conversations to have with your donor-conceived child. So yeah, like I said, there's a lot to digest in this episode. We have a lot to cover. Uh, because we have a lot to cover, I'll try to keep this brief. Um, I do want to thank all of you for your patience. I know it's taking me forever to upload these episodes recently. Um, it's gotten a little bit busy in my day-to-day -day life, so I apologize for that. And I want to thank the guests, too, for being so patient with me as uh, I take time in trying to get these episodes out. Um, I am back to editing these on my own again. So it is taking a bit time for me to get these out. So thank you. I really, 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 really appreciate um, your patience. And I also want to thank the monthly supporters who have been here to contribute. I want to thank you so much for helping us um, keep this podcast running. Um, I am really grateful for your contributions. Um, I also want you to know that I'm also a Pranamat affiliate. So if you use the code 40 and infertile, that's 40-A-N-D-I-N-F-E-R-T-I-L-E for your purchase. Podcast listeners get a special offer. Um, so thank you again so much for your support. Um, I really hope you continue to get value from these episodes and feel supported um, through your infertility path. It's not easy and I really hope um, that these episodes help you feel a little less alone or if you feel like you're having trouble navigating some of these questions or maybe if you think you're the only one having these questions hopefully these episodes serve to show you that you're not that um, other people you know are struggling with this as well and that you have a community of people you could potentially reach out to that can help support you um, and you know hopefully you can get some in extra information here if you feel like you're missing some of that there's so much I wish I would have known in the beginning that I know now that would have been helpful so hopefully this serves as um, another tool that you can use too so I want to thank Teresa so much for sharing her very, very personal story and for helping all of us who are looking to expand our families, no matter what they might look like. Um, she's so open in today's conversation. So if 
this is some of the stuff that you're navigating internally and you're not quite sure where to go or what questions you might ask or you know what other people have done. Um, hopefully this will help with that. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, we're back with another episode. Today's another warrior story. And today we have Teresa Ramakrishnan and she is a um, therapist, but um, this is also a warrior story about her own experience. So thank you so much, Teresa, for being here today with us and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for contributing to it. I mean, um, I think we cover a lot of stuff that would be beneficial to so many. And then particularly for those of us who are over 40 who are struggling with what to do. And um, your experience is very, very unique. And I'm very excited to share this because um, there's a lot of questions that come up, particularly when people are trying to decide if uh, building their family over 40 is the right choice for them. And there's many ways to arrive at this space. And there's a lot of questions that come up with being over 40, you know, um, a lot of things to think about. And even today, as I recorded another episode, we, uh, it was after the episode when we were talking, but we started, we like talked a lot about questions that come up and things you think about. Like, for instance, when you're over 40, it's like a lot of your friends have passed that period in their life. So you were excluded in the beginning when they were having, when they were building their families. And then now as their children have like grown up and have moved out of the home, you're excluded from that experience yeah. as well. And so you find yourself in both spaces, potentially feeling like you're alone. So I kind of want to dive into some of these experiences with you too. Absolutely. A certain way in which there, it can be isolating. And so I think that it's even more important to kind of build community and support around yourself and your family. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and like for you, let's kind of talk about your story. There's a lot of women who said they grew up just knowing they wanted to be a mom and they just knew deep down in their bones, this is what they were going to do. And it was just like, you know, something, it was their gift and something they were going to be like, that they were born to do. And it's, it can't, they can't imagine their lives without it. So let's kind of start with your story. Is that something how, is that how your story started? You, you know, you thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is something I have to do with my life. Yeah. I've always been a nurturer, a caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was very young, when I had, you know, the doll age, I, a doll went with me everywhere. And the little mm -hmm. diaper bag with the doll clothes. And I mean, I was literally, what my mom's so like, you're too old for a doll. <laughs> We're not doing dolls anymore. So I've always been a caregiver and a nurturer. But actually, as I became an adult, and uh, when my ex-husband and I got married, neither one of us wanted children. So that had shifted for me. There were other ways in which I was being nurturing and caregiving, you know, one becoming a, you know, by becoming a therapist. Um, but at that point, I didn't see 
being a mother and having a child as part of that. And during the time we were together, we were married for 15 years, but we were together as a couple for 19. And over that time, I went from no to maybe to yes, and like absolutely yes. And my ex-husband went from no to no to no. And so that became, you know, a, a, at some point that this, you can only negotiate that so far. You either become parents or you don't, you, you know, you don't try it out. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you, you know, opt out. You, it's a leap of faith, right? Like this is what I want to do with my life. So um, it was a process to kind of come to the realization that it was my path, absolutely. And it was not his path, absolutely. And so then we um, made the decision to separate and divorce, and I made the decision to move forward as a single mom by choice. And by this time, um, I'm in my late 40s. So I'm, you know, going to the fertility clinic, I'm having my, you know, kind of first orientation appointment, and um, the doctor says, you know, if you want, we can absolutely try to um, retrieve eggs, you know, we can do that. We'll we can try for a year if you want. We see, you know, we can, he said, but you know, at the age that you are, because at that time I was probably, oh gosh, I was like 48, 49. And he said, you know, we could try for a year and you might get one, two viable eggs. And that's eggs, not embryos, right? So, and I just thought, you know, I think doing this the way that I'm, I've made the choice that I'm going to do this as a single mom and at the age that I am, I think, you know, being um, single and being pregnant and giving birth and being a, a mom in my 50s is going to be, you know, it's going to have its challenges. It's going to be challenging enough. I don't want to enter that journey exhausted and depleted and overwhelmed and stressed and heartbroken and all the things that it could be. So I literally sat in the chair for about 10 seconds and, and said, mm -mm, donor, I just, let's just skip all that. Let's just skip all of that and let's just go straight to donor. Um, so that was the kind of the, the path that led to the choice of being a single parent and the path that led to um, knowing I was going to be using donor uh, DNA. Initially, um, my assistant and I, we talked about it for a while and we thought maybe it might be something that, you know, we could work out, we could do. And so initially I thought that I would be using a donor egg and at that time my um, husband's sperm. And then it became, you know, apparent that that wasn't his path and that I was going to be doing this journey alone. And so then it because the realization is actually going to be um, a dual donor situation. And so I kind of went through the process of, do I want to, because at that point then it's, do I want to adopt a child? Do I want to adopt uh, an embryo? Do I want to go with dual donor and create embryos? And I kind of looked into all of that and researched all of that. And I felt that while I had faith in myself, when it comes to adoption, um, I was looking at adoption of an embryo, the, the, you know, the parents, the couple or the individual 
whose embryos they are, they choose who they will allow to adopt the embryo or not. And I just, again, was just kind of practical and thought, you know, I'm not going to be a strong candidate. I'm single. I'm in my 50s. Probably not going to be at the top of anybody's list. And so that just feels like it would be, if I just chose that route, it felt like something that was going to be even more of an obstacle and even, um, you know, work, make it just take longer. And again, just thought, you know, I think I, I think what I'm going to do, I think what's going to work best for me is to do the dome, uh, the dual donors and create embryos and go that route. And so I did that. I went through the process of choosing an egg donor and choosing a sperm donor. And then um, my husband and I at that time were going through our divorce and then was told by the clinic that I could not create embryos. I could not do that as long as I was still technically legally married. I had to wait until the divorce was final and I was legally a single person to do that. If um, they created the embryos while we were, even though we were going through the divorce, while we were still technically married, they would belong to both of us. And whether he wanted to or not, it would be legally considered his child as well as mine. And we had already been through all that. Neither one of us, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And so I had to stop and wait um, for a long time, many, many months, almost a year. And um, looking back on it, that actually was the, mo the most difficult uh, part of the whole journey, the whole process, which the whole part from the time I went in for that very first kind of orientation appointment until I had my, um, my daughter was two and a half, three years. But if I had to choose something that was the hardest of the whole thing, it was the time that I had to wait, that I couldn't move forward. I couldn't do anything. And then when the divorce was final and I could pick it up again and start over, um, both of those donors were no longer available. The <clears throat> egg donor had aged out of the program. Um, and I don't, um, the sperm other were no more vials available. And I don't know the story there if he just decided not to donate again or what that was. But um, anyway, neither, neither of those were available. And I had to start over um, choosing new donors. And that's a that's a process and you get really invested in the the donors and you get invested in this you know kind of the the imaginary child that's going to you know come from that and so then to have to kind of let all of that go was another um kind of you know a loss a grief process there's so many losses and grief processes you know along this journey the first one, you know, just being the, the acknowledging that I was going to be doing this alone. That was not my plan A. Plan A would have been to do it with a partner. Um, then realizing I wasn't going to be able to have my own, um, you know, genetic child. I wasn't going to pass on my own genetics. Um, I was going to be using donors. And now to be told, you know, that I have to wait. It's like almost a year. You can't do anything. You're going to be, you know, just kind of in a holding pattern. And then, okay. And now neither of the donors that you chose are available. You got to start over with that. So it's just this, you know, the constant kind of letting, it's a constant letting go, you know, and moving, just continue to move forward and let go and let go. So I started over and chose new donors and um, 
they um, created embryos, and I ended up with three uh, viable embryos. And um, went the extra step and had them uh, genetically tested again, just knowing I was going to be doing this as a single person. And um, at the advanced age I was, that was just an extra step that I felt I really wanted to take. Um, and luckily, they were all um, normal. And you know, I've been asked before, like, did you have like a certain like a number in mind? Oh, I, you know, if I could just get this many embryos or this many normal embryos. And I really wasn't attached to an integer, but I just said, I just want more than I need. If I need three, then give me four. If I need two, give me three. I just want more than I need. And I was incredibly lucky and blessed and I only needed one. We did the the transfer and it took the first time and I had a healthy pregnancy and birth and healthy baby and healthy recovery. Um, so it, yeah, it was all, all worth it. Um, but it's, yeah, I'll tell you, it's full on. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's like a lot I want to dive into because there's like so many components to this that I kind of want to break down. So I kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning um, because there might be some people and I know that there are some people in the space right now where they're thinking, do I want to push forward, you know, to do this on my own if they're at a certain age? Do I do this as a single parent on my own? Do I do the child free, childless Mm -hmm. life? Mm -hmm. Do I, and and they may be in the same relationship you were in where they may not be on the same page on whether or not they want to move forward right. with, you know, having a family together or whatever for many different reasons, Absolutely. right? So for you, how did you come to the space that you thought, okay, I'm going to do this? Like what, what helped you get there? I mean, I, I know you're a therapist, um, and I don't know if it's those tools that helped you to go there or, you know, did you see your own therapist or what kind of work did you do? What questions did you ask yourself to say, OK, this is my path? Yeah, I think both. I think that absolutely um, because you can't separate yourself from, you know, being a therapist. I can't, you know, I'm not just sit there Monday, but, you know, that's just part of who I am now. So I think certainly that played a part in it. But absolutely, um, I had my own psychotherapist who I saw weekly throughout this entire process and thank God for that and help me really tease apart and look at what was my like true path as an, you know my authentic self, my authentic human being self, what was my path. And it just, the more that I did that and the more honest I got with myself and the um, more vulnerable I allowed myself to be, I really realized that a lot of my not wanting to have children actually, you know, came from things from my past that I still needed to kind of work through. There were some um, some things around parenthood and childhood and um, that, that I hadn't fully kind of processed yet. And as I did that work um, and just continued to kind of come into myself, really realized that, yes, again, like all the way back to, you know, having like the, the baby doll that went everywhere, that is who I am as an authentic person. I am a nurturer. I am a caregiver. I am a mother, someone who needs to, to mother. And it just became blatantly obvious throughout the work that I did 
but this was without a doubt, this was my path. I was not going to feel like I had lived my full potential if I didn't try everything I could try to have to do this, to be a mother. I was not assured or guaranteed that it would happen, but I knew that if I at least tried everything that was available to me and it did not happen, while it would be devastating and it would be a huge loss, I would be able to find peace. I would be able to find peace, but if I did not try everything I could try to be a mother, to have this happen in my life, I wouldn't have been able to be at peace. I would not have been able to leave this life feeling I had fulfilled my potential. Mm -hmm. Like what kind of questions did you ask yourself? Because I, I know as people are kind of working through when, if they're, if this is the path that they're currently on, they're probably working through like, how do I know what questions do I ask myself or you know, what, and of course, you know, get help, get support, but kind of in your own kind of homework, you know, what questions did you find you were helpful in asking yourself, trying to figure this out? Yeah. And I know people that I've worked with um, professionally as a therapist. I know people in my own personal life, friends that have gone through this process. And I know people that just made both decisions. I know people who have made decisions to move forward to become parents. And I know people who have made decisions that it's not, you know, at this time and where they are, it's not for them. Um, so I think one thing I'll say, I think that we all have innate strengths, you know, with, within us. And I think if we can kind of focus in and pinpoint what those are, I think we can use those strengths and that skill set to help us through our reproductive journeys. For myself, I've always been someone who was able to have kind of an equilibrium between both a really um, intense attachment side to myself. I can be, you know, very emotional and become very attached. And I have that emotional kind of intelligence quality, but I also have a side of me that's just very logical and very practical and nuts and bolts. And I think being able to kind of, uh, combine those two and being able to have both of those sides really helped me. So I would ask both questions like, what is it going to be like to, to do this alone? What's it going to be like to have a child and to be the single parent of that child and to not have anyone to share that child with both the um, kind of responsibilities of that, but also um, to the joys of that. And then I would also ask myself, really super practical questions like, can I do this? Do I have the, you know, all resources. I mean, do I have the energy to do this? Do I have the bandwidth to do this? Do I have the finances to do this? And so I think just being willing to ask yourself the hard questions of both the emotional, what's it going to be like as an emotional experience to do this alone? And then just those really nuts and bolts. What's it going to be like to do this in a practical day-to-day sense on your own? And they're tough questions and they're tough answers. And I think, uh, again, just like having that neutral person to be able to, to go and look, it's not, it wasn't always, you know, absolutely. There were days I was like, I don't know if I can do this. There were times like, I, I don't know, maybe I can't do this. And then there are times I think, yeah, I can. And so I think also just being willing to let that happen, to let that process of just being that there are times that you're unsure and not kind of, um, I kind of try to force myself to make a decision too quickly and just let that process kind of unfold naturally. 
I think helped me just to realize like, yeah, this is, this is my path. So what made you go from no to maybe to yes? Like what happened to make you say, wait a minute, maybe I do want to do this. I think again, honestly, it was working through a lot of my own past, uh, like just my own past interpersonal like issues, relationship issues, um, family of origin issues. I think that there was a lot of, of me that was like, I don't know if I am going to be the kind of parent that I would want to be. I don't know that I'm, you know, going to be able to show up and be present in the way that I want to be for a child. And I think doing a lot of my own work really helped me see that in a different perspective and like, yeah, you, you, you got this, you can do this. Um, and I will say also in some sense, the age, as you know, I go through this process, the aging, I do, feel, you know, I am more mature. I do have more life experience, more wisdom than I did, you know, when in my twenties and thirties, everybody's unique and different for me myself. I will say, I know that I am a better parent now at the age that I am now than I would have been. I'm not saying anybody, but that I would have been in my twenties or in my thirties. Um, so I feel like, um, it was a, a process that unfolded over a long period of time. And there wasn't like just one thing that was like, Oh, now the light bulbs come on and it's, you know, super clear. It was a process, but a lot of it had to do honestly with just doing my own work and also just the, the way that life naturally unfolds and you gain more experience and wisdom. And, and we talked about this before, but you know, I can only imagine the difficult conversation this is to have at home when you finally come to this realization that I think we're just on two different paths and it's not a bad thing. It just is that it's different. So, you know, what was, what do you recommend for people who have to have that conversation or who need to have that conversation? Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, we, we actually worked on it for a long time. We did couples therapy, you know, a couple of different times. And it's interesting because you would think like, Oh, you did that and it didn't work, but it did work because it, it worked because it allowed us to both be able to say, no, this is, this is who I am. And this is my, this is the path I have you know, to follow. And so we were able to get to a place to just really honor, respect each other in that way. And I have nothing but good things to say about my ex-husband and we're still friends and we cats it for each other. And, um, he's got an amazing character because he was able to say, it's not my path, but I'm not going to stand in your way or ask you to give up something that you feel is your path, something that you have to do. And by the same token, I'm not going to try to force him to do something that's not authentic to who he is. Um, so I think just we have, and again, we've been together for a long time. We've been together for almost 20 years, you know, at that point and still really um, caring for and respected each other and still do. And again, it's a lot of really tough, honest, vulnerable, painful, intense questions. Um, and you've got to be willing to be honest with yourself and with the other person, you know, in some ways it would have been easier for one, you know, just one of us to give in. Right. Like, um, sure, I'll, you know, I'll do it or, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give it up. It's harder to, you know, to 
to kind of stay the course and go, this is, you know, it's sad that it's come to this, but this is where I am and this is where he is. Yeah. It usually comes up later. (laughs) If you bury it, it's going to come back up later. Exactly. Exactly. And we both, you know, we knew that, like if we, basically we'd just be postponing it. Right. So we could have either had a child and it's not what well, he, he doesn't want to be a parent. And then we end up getting divorced anyway. And then we've got, you know, he is a parent. And then not only is he a parent, but he's a single parent, you know, we're right. Or I give up the, you know, the, the desire to be a parent. And then I end up. And then there's all this resentment. Exactly. For, you know, putting on him, you know, projecting onto him that it's his fault that I'm not a parent. And then we got divorced anyway. And then it really is too late to become a parent, right? Because I was really at, I mean, the window was closing. I was really at the, the end of even what, you know, science can do. So exactly, it would have happened anyway. It would have happened in a way that was, you know, less healthy and less, it wouldn't have served, it wouldn't have served anyone for us to stay together and try to force mm-hmm. that. And so I have so many things to talk about. <laughs> so did you, when you came to um, the realization that this was your path, um, what were family and friends supportive? Did you find that they were all like, yes, you know, we're here to support you in any way you need? Or did you find that you got a lot of pushback or judgment or anything like that from friends or family? Yeah, I will say for the most part, um, everyone was very supportive and very encouraging. There were a couple of exceptions to that. Um, but I was really, um, people says I can help, I'm cynical, but I was really surprised at how I actually expected more of the pushback and I just really didn't get it. People were very, very supportive and very encouraging. Um, there were a couple that were just kind of like, didn't quite get it. Like, Hmm, like you think you would have decided this before now, or, you know, you think that you would just say like, well, if it, I'm at this point and I haven't done it, it's probably not a good idea. They just didn't quite get um, that I was so, so um, adamant about doing it, even the way that I was going to have to to do it as a single person, as, you know, or, you know, much older, you know, mom. But for the most part, people were really supportive and encouraging. And it was, you know, a really pleasant, yeah, pleasant surprise. Well, what would you say to people who maybe don't have family or friends who are as supportive who are either because they're choosing to do it alone independently or if they're choosing to do it older or both what would you say to those people who maybe don't have a lot of support in that way yeah so i think that's where the um, kind of community building comes in is to um, create your community your family your support reach out to um, anyone that is supportive and this is something that I wish that I had done earlier. I wish that I had really um, built kind of a supportive community um, of people going through, you know, infertility treatment or people who have been through infertility treatment. You know, reach out, look online, talk to your, you know, fertility clinic or talk to your OBGYN and find out like resources that are out there and communities and build a community because you are going to need, you are going to need the support. It is, again, it is full on. It is tough. So you're going to need the support. So absolutely reach out to any family and friends that are supportive. 
reach out and build a community of people in the infertility um, community. Absolutely get a therapist or a coach um, or somebody who can really be that, you can give you that unconditional positive regard and be that neutral person that, that's, that creates that safe container that you can really just go to and sink in and really tease all of this apart. Because it's really, um, it's a lot, you know, it's a, you will not be the same person. Whatever the, the result is, you will not be the same person on, you know, the other side of this journey that you are when you start out. It is going to challenge you in ways that you cannot imagine. It's going to, you know, ask you to stretch and open up and in ways that you, yeah, you can't imagine. So absolutely reach out, build a community, get support. You know, and I think as people in general, outside of any of this, um, I think we do fear change. And I think we do fear like uh, when we change as people, because, you know, it's not always for bad, you know, sometimes it's for good. And um, sometimes it gets you to, you know, where you need to be. And I think, um, I think that's important to bring up too, that sometimes, you know, it change isn't always bad. And, um, as people, we evolve over time, I think, cause I, I know I've done this before where I expect myself to be the same or expect my friends to be the same. I'm like, why are you different? <laughs> like, and, but then when you do all this work and you do all it, it you can't not change, you know? Exactly. Yeah. You can't not change. Um, yeah. Change is scary. You know, inherently, I think change is, you know, is scary and it can be really uncomfortable. And I think that's something that, you know, as a society, as a culture, we really try to avoid any kind of discomfort, any kind of, you know, pain or discomfort. Right. And um, that's why we don't have these conversations because <laughs> they're so uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. And you just, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to avoid um, discomfort or pain or change on a reproductive journey. Again, whatever the outcome is going to be, it's going to happen. So the, the more comfortable that you can get with being uncomfortable, the, yeah, the, the smoother process you're, you're going to have in this because you're going to change and it's, you're going to be uncomfortable at times, really uncomfortable. And then, so you got to the space where you decided, okay, I'm going to do this. I would like to become a parent. And you started the process with your ex-husband and he was on board at that time. So how old were you at that time when you guys decided to proceed together? I was, let's see, 48 or 49 because I got pregnant when I was 50 and gave birth at 51. And I did like, as soon as the divorce was final and I could, I mean, I just like as quickly as I possibly could. So I would say I was, um, 49. Yeah. When, yeah, I would say 49. And did you do any of the testing? Like, did you already get your AMH checked and all that stuff? I, because I had said like, I don't even, well, I'm not even going to try to do egg retrieval. Even back then you were like, nope, so not even. Any of yeah. Well, I had that first, you know, again, I call it kind of my like orientation appointment with the, the clinic and he was the doctor and, you know, thank goodness that he did offer that because I think that that is the, um, the patient's choice of whether they want 
to go that route or not. So think even at my age, you know, he offered it. He didn't just, just say, for closure. Well, yeah, exactly. We're not going to, we're not even going to go there. You want to do it. It's, I'll do it if you want to. Um, so because I had it from that point, I just said, no, let's just, let's, let's skip that. Let's just go with, you know, donor. Um, so I didn't go through any of that kind of testing, but yes, there was lots and lots. Of, like I personally knew the phlebotomist had so much blood drawn and, um, lots of tests, which I think we all go through. And then because I've only done it the one time and at the age that I did, I don't know how much of it, um, is because of the, uh, my age, but I also I had to get like, I had to have an EKG. I had to have an, um, echo stress, you know, echocardio stress test. They really wanted to be sure that my heart could withstand the pregnancy. Cause by the end, by the time you give birth, your blood volume is doubled. Your heart's working like, and so they wanted to make sure that all of that, my heart, my lungs, everything could, um, but you know, could take a pregnancy. And, um, I also had to get a letter from my um, my regular OBGYN stating that she was aware that I was going to be doing this, going through um, IVF and uh, pregnancy, and that she was willing to take me as a patient to follow my pregnancy after I was released from the fertility clinic. They followed me, I think, for almost the first trimester, and then I went to the regular OBGYN. But yeah, I didn't even have a letter stating, like, I, we know we will follow her. Um, through her pregnancy. So yeah, lots of testing. And I think that's wonderful that the clinic that you went to didn't automatically dismiss you based on your age. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of times if you're like over 40, whatever, they said, bye, like, sorry, no, thank you. Yeah, no, they were wonderful. They actually, um, their policies, they will work with you until you're 52. So, um, like I said, it was the time I very first kind of went in for that first appointment. I think I was 49, um, ended up getting pregnant at 50 and having the baby at 51. And so when I went in and they told me that we'll work with you until you're, you know, 52 and at 49, I think, oh, that's great. I've got, you know, 49, 51, 52. But once you start down this road, like that, the time starts ticking away quickly because a lot of this, um, you know, it just, everything you do, every procedure, every, it eats up time. So I had, um, in total, I had three surgical procedures. I had a polyp removed. I had a myomectomy to have a fibroid removed. And then I had a procedure where they went in and kind of like shaved, you know, the lining of my uterus to make it just really kind of smooth and pristine before they did the transfer. And so each one of those procedures takes time. Um, for the surgery, I actually had to wait a couple of months before I could even have it. They were, you know, had kind of backed up. So if I had to wait two months before I could have the surgery. And then the shortest amount of recovery time was three months. They really would like to see six months, but because of my age, they were willing to do it with a three, but it had a absolute minimum of three months recovery time. So waiting the two months before to have the surgery and then the three months recovery time after that one surgery ate up five months. So, and then I had to wait for the divorce, which ate up oh, several months. So you think, oh, well, I've got four years, but then all of this stuff, you know, starts eating away your time and you're thinking, whoa, I actually, it's not as much, you know, it's not as much time as I, you know, it felt like it was going to be. Yeah. So um, you did all the surgeries and then now you get to the space where, okay, 
you want to move forward. So we, you talked a little bit about the donor. Um, let's talk about how you kind of selected your donors both times because <laughs> you had to do it twice. Yeah, so, yeah, so how did you <laughs> take five? Minutes. Yeah, how did you decide? like on your donors, like what characteristics were you looking for or were there any, or did you, did you feel drawn to find someone that like looked like you or some people like to do blood type? Like what was your thinking process for all that? Cause it was such an interesting process. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so, I mean, if, if no one has ever had to go through like a bunch of donors, it's, it's a very bizarre experience. It's so bizarre. It's like being on a dating app. Yes. Like, you know, you're looking at pictures and ages and, you know, what they're... And like, what, you know, like, did you go to no. college or did you not? Or did you... Exactly. What's their degree Yeah, in? what's your blood exactly. type and what, yeah. like... So let's start with the uh, egg donor. What did you look for in an egg donor? Because I think for us as females, that's kind of... You know, like, the, it's a big thing, right? It, it's... You feel like it's replacing you. So, like... How did you go about doing that? Absolutely. That's a loss, pro- you know, grief and loss process itself, that it's not going to be my genetics that are going to be passed on. It's going to be someone else's. And so it was interesting because when I first just the kind of thinking about, oh, I'm going to do the donor route. But before I got time to you know pick them, I had this kind of idea in my head of what the characteristic, like my top you know, characteristics would be. And I thought it would be things like that, like um I would like to have somebody that at least, you know, looks somewhat like me. Um, I'd love to have, you know, somebody who studied psychology in you know, college or uh, loves poetry or music or, you know, kind of all of the, you know, t- temperament, like, oh, somebody had this kind of temperament. And then once I actually got down to, you know, doing this and then doing this for the second time, looking more and more at it, I just realized for me um, it came down to health. Uh, was the person healthy? Was their family of origin, their background, was it healthy? Because they go back three generations on both sides for each donor. And it's interesting because some people say, like, what was that like to, you know, have a donor? And I say, you know what? I know way more about the donors than I did about anybody I ever did. <laughs> I don't. I don't know my ex-husband's aunt's SAT score. Yeah, 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 yeah. The amount of information <laughs> you get is quite astounding. So you know way more about them than, than you would. You know, you don't do that when you, you know, you're married or you just have a baby with your husband. Yeah, you don't go back three generations and look at what everybody studied and what their hair color and eye color is. And um, so it, took, it came down to health. I wanted um, my child to have the best possible chance, option four, uh, both quantity and quality of life. And I thought about, um, you know, I would never want her or him, you know, to come to me one day and say, you know, it was so important to you that I, you know, have this certain hair color or eye color or, you know, body frame or something. That was more important than the fact that there's like, you know, this person's family history is rampant with, you know, heart disease or whatever. So for me, honestly, when it came down to actually choosing it, all of that stuff about the hair color and eye color and what they studied, that went out the window. It was, it was help. I want to give my child the absolute most, you know, like optimal 
chance for a very, you know, very long, good, both quantity and quality of life. And what about the sperm donor? Did you find yourself looking for different characteristics in a sperm donor? No, same thing. I just wanted somebody that was really like super healthy and that their family history was super healthy. I just wanted, that's what I was, what was the most important. I mean, there certainly there were other things that were important, but that was, so if I came down to like, I had two people and um, one had, one did study psychology and like poetry and play classical music and, you know, this and that. And the other one had a lot of those too, but it was very clear that one had, um, you know, something in the family history that was iffy, absolutely went with the other. And this person's like, you know, clean bill of health. That's who I'm going with. And another thing that we talked about when we last kind of talked about, um, the egg uh, and sperm donor is um, the concept of anonymous versus open ID. So how did you come to that decision to choose either anonymous or open ID? Yeah, I actually um, only looked at people who were open um, because again, for, I was thinking about um, the, my child and uh, the same thing. I wanted them to have the option to try to find out more about the donors um, when they're, you know, turn 18, if they want to. I just, I felt like that was a decision for my child to make and for the donors to make. Because they can, even though they're open, they can still opt out if, you know, they want to. But I felt like that was their decision. It wasn't my, my decision. I shouldn't decide for my child whether or not he or she should be able to try to reach out or contact or find out more about their donors. Um, that's, that's their decision if they want to do that or not. And I'll support whatever she wants to do. So I actually only um, considered both egg and sperm donors that were open. Was it hard to come to that decision or did you, because to be honest, when I first was looking at this donor stuff, I had no idea all this stuff <laughs> existed. I know. And, and yeah. all these different decisions that you have to make if you decide to yes. use a donor. And so I didn't know what was all involved. So did you kind of, how did you educate yourself on it? And then how did you come to that decision that, yes, it, it, this is the best path for us? Mm -hmm. You're right. There's so much that um, you don't know about until you kind of you're in that and doing it. Um, there's also which um, I will register her for, you know, at some point when she's on, you can do um, donor sibling registry. So she can sign up to see if there are any um, she has any, you know, half siblings that are from these donors. And if she, the, and if the, the siblings, if the children all want to get to know each other, they can do that, too. And so she will have that option as well. Um yeah, it's it's a process. So I think when you start doing it and you see like, oh, there are people who have chosen to be anonymous and there are people who have chosen to be open. Then I kind of like, you know, would do some research, go online and like look and kind of read stories or um, testimonials about both kind of from the donor perspective and from the um, donor conceived, you know, the child perspective. And I think just again, for me, it always came back to, I feel like that's um, her, and I use her because I have a daughter, I had a girl, I, that's her right and her choice and her decision, not mine. And I think I, as much as I could, and I, you know, can't absolutely do that, but as much as I could, I tried to put myself in her place, her position, if I were a donor conceived child 
and someone had made that and since kind of had made that decision for me. And what if I really wanted to try to find out more about the donor and I wasn't even an option because my parents had chosen anonymous. And again, just for me, I felt like that would really feel like someone had kind of taken something away from me that was more my right and my choice to decide about. And so I just said, you know, I'm going to, that's going to be for her to decide what she wants to do when she reaches the age. Um, so yeah, I just felt like that was, that was more not, it really wasn't my right to make that decision. It was more going to be hers. And so, yeah, so I only looked, I only considered people who were open. No, I think that's a great perspective because I mean, that question I think comes a up for a lot of people, um, you know, whether or not to choose open ID or anonymous. Yeah. And, you know, I understand why people, you know, make another choice. And again, I think that's every person's choice at the time. You know, this is, again, this is tough. You, what you, you make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time and you just be compassionate with yourself. So I certainly understand people making the a decision that was different for mine. And that was just how it, that's how it landed on me. It felt like if I, I felt like if I chose, um, anonymous, it would be more about me than about her, maybe about some anxiety that I might have about her reaching out to them at some later point or like insecurity or something. Yeah, exactly. That it would be more about my, um, experience. So that was just how it, it felt to me that the anonymous would be more about my experience and the open was more about her experience. I see. No, I mean, like I said, I think that's really great because, you know, I have talked to a few people and, um, you know, it's been really great to talk to some of these people who have experience with either being a donor conceived person or, you know, being, um, a, a recipient, um, parent to kind of like share the reasons why, um, they would or would not choose one or the other. Um, in one of the episodes, I forget, maybe 10 or something like that. I, um, I interviewed Emma, who's a donor conceived person. And we had a conversation about whether or not she would choose open ID or anonymous and why. And I mean, I think that's um, an interesting perspective. And I'll have another donor conceived person on soon. And I, you know, want to ask the same thing, why you would choose. And then another, you know, I would talk to another recipient parent too. And like, what, why do you choose that? And I think it's good to hear everyone's reasoning. And then you can decide exactly. for you and your family, which is the best right. path that's, for you. Because right. um, this is also complicated. <laughs> It's so complicated. I mean, there is no right, you know, answer or no. Oh, this is the you know the only that the only you know kind of healthy, aware way to do this. It's no. You have to, to decide what's right and the right fit for you and your family. Being or knowing that you were an older parent, um, there's a lot of obstacles that come with that. What are some of the obstacles that you found while you were you know starting this process and then kind of being in it, what are some things that you really thought about that made you say, yes, I can do this? And you talk about kind of the peaks and valleys of this whole experience for you, where some days you felt really good about your decision. Some days you're like, oh, is this really the right thing to do? So on those days where you question yourself, what are the things that come across your mind? And on the days that are really great, what are the things you're happy about? I think, um, or you speak like when I was um, like making the decision to do this, you're speaking like as a parent, like now, well, both. Let's start with before and then let's talk about after. Yeah. 
Because I'm sure those views are different because then you have the experience, right? As opposed exactly. to just, just theoretical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think before the days that I felt really good were I felt, you know, I felt like I felt confident. I felt I'm a big believer in mind, body, spirit connection. I'm a big believer in manifestation. And I really felt like the process that I had gone through to get to the place to be able to say, this is my path. This is my journey. I'm going, I didn't know how it was going to happen or look. I didn't know exactly when or how I knew that I was going to mother a child. And whether I, mean, I would have my own child, I would adopt a child. I'd be a foster parent. I'd be, you know, big brother, big sister. I was going to nurture a child. And so on those days, it was like, yes, that was the, to get me to the decision to do this. This is going to happen. I've always been just like an eyes on the prize. And so whatever they said you have to do, fine. You have to have this surgery, fine. You got to have this procedure, fine. You got to pick a new egg donor, fine. I am going to do this. And so those days, I think that, just those kind of the manifesting, like this is going to happen. And then on the days that I didn't, you know, feel that it was, it was both the, again, the emotional and the practical. It was, can I do this? Can I do this emotionally? Can I be there and show up and be mom and dad, you know, provide for the child, everything that they need in every way. Can I do that at this you know stage of my life? Every single day, every single day, because it's, well, I'll talk about that when I talk about kind of the now. So I'll say what they're before. So yeah, it was, can I do this? Do I have the energy, the resources, the money, the wherewithal, the bandwidth? Can I do this? Because I did, what I did not want to do was to bring a child into this world. I'm going to pay. And then to feel like I somehow failed them. I couldn't. And of course, that's a whole process itself. No, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And you, yeah. But I mean, that's, that was kind of what was weighing on me. Um, and then there was the practical side. What is this going to look like? So now, um, so when you, I mean, I went through a divorce and everything that everybody goes through for you, usually your where you live changes. Um, you're, you know, now I'm, <laughs> so now in a sense, kind of, uh, you know, IVF just kind of doubled in price because I was initially thinking like, I'm going to do it with dual income. Right. And now I'm doing it with single income. So it all of a sudden got like even more expensive. Right. So there was all the practical stuff too. Where am I going to live? Um, how am I, how am I going to shift my uh, finances so I can afford this? Um, how will I, um, you know, work? Like what's, who's with the baby when I'm working? Who, you know, like who am I going to be, you know, getting, up at, at night and then going to work. Um, I knew early on, even before I got pregnant, because I'd had the myomectomy surgery, I was going to have a C-section. So I'm thinking that I'm recovering from surgery, C-section. Who's there? You can't even, you can't lift the baby for the first, you know, like who's bringing, lifting the baby and bringing it to me. Cause it's not my partner. It's not, you know, uh, my husband. So all, it was both the emotional side and all the practical um, stuff. And so now the, after there's you know, so much, there's so much good, you know, she's amazing. And I love being a mom and it goes on and on and on. And then for after the difficult stuff is that, uh, that it's, I don't have anyone to share her with. And again, it's both the challenges and the joy. So like you said, every decision, every day, the book stops with mom. 
So it's the little decisions about what she going to have for breakfast, you know, what's the temperature day, what she going to wear, those things up to, you know, things like she wakes up at three o'clock in the morning and she's got a fever and I'm there in the house alone in the dark with the baby at 3 a.m. with a fever. I'm the one that decides what we're doing. I don't have the co-parent or partner turn to to say, what do you think we you know, should do? And so that can, like the knowledge of that can kind of, that can get heavy, that can weigh on you that every decision from the smallest to the largest is mine solely to make. Um, and then the other side of that is that I don't have anyone to share the, the, the joy of her with in the same way. And it's not to say I don't have family and friends and uh, people who are in love with her and share the joy of her. But again, it's not the same as having a co-parent to share her with. And so when she does something for the first time or she's, she's hysterical, she doesn't know it. She's, and so she says something really funny. Um, you know, a lot of the times it's the two, it's the two of us, it's me and her. Right. So, um, I don't have, yeah, I don't have the co-parent to turn to, to say, did you see what she just did? Right. Or did you hear what she just said in that hysterical? And so that, in a sense, that's the times that it feels, it can feel really kind of, you know, lonely or isolating to say, like, I wish like I had somebody else to, to share her with. Um, so that's the, the tough part. And but the, she's, yeah, she's amazing. And I will tell you, um, the, the after part about the donor conception too, like, cause I have, she's almost two and a half. So I have two and a half years of experience with her. Um, I wouldn't change anything about her. There's absolutely nothing I would subtract from her or add to her. So even if I could wave a magic wand and go back and say, Oh, we have this perfect egg of yours. Do you want to, I'd be like, no way. Like there's, I couldn't get a more amazing kid if, if I tried. So I have absolutely no qualms or regrets or anything about, you know, her coming to be the way she did. Mm -hmm. And this question might be kind of hard to answer because um, you only know one side of the story, but do you feel like there are challenges that you, as someone who's 50 raising a child, is different than someone who's say 20 or 30? Like, do you think that there are things that are unique to being over 40 or 50 than, than there are to being 20 or 30? Yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, just, I can't like, what's both the emotional and the practical, very practical questions like, how long am I going to live? You know, I'm in really good health now and knock on wood, you know, that holds out. You know, I, that's something that I think about that I worry about. Um, I've got to, you know, I got to get this kid raised. So I, I don't think that's something that you would probably, you know, think too much about in your twenties, you know? Um, so I, I mean, something super practical like that. And I think about it getting, so it's also kind of like, how long can I work? Because I want to be able to, you know, support her. Um, I want to be able to send her to college if she wants to go to graduate school or, you know, so how, you know, how long does that, what does that look like? You know, what is, what is, when do I retire? Like, what does that look like? So like really practical things like that. Um, yeah. And look, I do get tired. And I know some people say like, oh yeah, I'm older, but I'm so, no, I'm tired. I get, you know, I get tired. Yeah, no, I get tired. 
Um, and so I think about that, like, is she going to want to, you know, play soccer together or do what? And am I going to be like, oh, mommy's, you know, mommy's worked all day. Mommy's tired. You know? Yeah. Look, I'm, yeah, I'm in my fifties. I, I'm not in my twenties. I'm in my fifties. So there's no you know, getting around that. Um, so yeah, I ask myself all of those questions and I think those are challenges. And again, there is no guarantee that, you know, something will happen to you when you're in your twenties that you won't, right. That you're going to automatically live to be 80 or 90, that you're going to automatically be able to work until you're 65 or seven. There's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantees any, any of this. So again, you do the best you can with you know, the information that you have. If something had come during all of the testing I did, if something had come back, you know, we're, you know, it's kind of borderline with your heart or your, um, your pre-diabetic or, you know, I hope that, um, I would have been able to say, you know what, maybe it's not, you know, I am going to have to, you know, accept this and let this go. But there was, there was no physical reason I could not do this at the age I was. Um, there was no mental and I felt like I had done all of that work. I felt like I was really in a good place again, that kind of mind, body, spirit place to do this, to take this on. And I still feel that. This is something that I think about is like judgment from others. And I know like we should not care what other people think about, but you know, it's a consideration that you might have where, you know, other people might be, because when growing up and this is back in the day when, um, you know, it was not normal to have babies in your forties. My mom was like, my mom was 38 when she gave birth to me. So it like, you may as well be 95 back then, like in the eighties that you may as well have been 95. <laughs> so, so I, and it used to annoy me a lot when I was a kid, cause people would like see me and my mom and now 38, you're like, Oh my gosh, that's young. <laughs> you know, like that's great. I wish I could have had 38. Like nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I remember when I was a kid, kids would used to, you would come up to me a lot and be like, is this your grandma? And I'm like, no, that's my mom. And like, I would be so offended and insulted. They, how, no, she's my mother. Can't you tell, you know? And like, I would like, uh, I was insulted for her. You know what I mean? Like, so do you, do you ever think about stuff like that? Or has anyone ever asked you that? Like, how does that feel? I get sometimes, nobody's ever said anything kind of blatantly. I get sometimes when people... Um, I'll say, you know, we talk about our kids and they'll say, do you have kids? And I say, oh yeah, you know, I have one, I have a daughter. And they'll say, you know, how old is she? And they're expecting me to say, you know, 20 something or 30 something. Yeah. And I say, oh, she's two. <laughs> and I'll get, you can see like they're doing the math in their head. <laughs> and like, oh, we're like, oh, okay. Oh, she's young. I'm like, yeah, she's a baby. <laughs> like, yeah, I was, yeah, I was older. Um, so I think kind of both, I think for me and I think about it for me and I think about it for her in some ways. And I don't, you know, this is just me. Like I see it as a badge of honor. I'm like, to me, it's more like, yeah, I, yeah, I had a baby at 50. I got pregnant at 50, had a baby at 51. Like, yeah, I seem like I want to, I'm going to like, get a t-shirt with that on it. Um, but I, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm her mom, not her grandma. Um, but I think about it for her, like you were saying, and I wonder what that's going to be like for her when she starts school and mom, you know, mommy's at the PTA meetings or the bake sales and yeah. Um, mommy's, you know, obviously a lot older than, you know, all of her friends' mommies and, um, what it would be like for her. And is that, we were trying earlier kind of the exclusion, like, is there some way that I will, you know, just by that fact of age will not, you know, I'm not in the same 
kind of life uh, experience zones, the other moms, and will that in some way exclude me? And will that translate to, in some way, excluding her? Will she somehow have some exclusion because of my age? That's the thing that um, if I was going to lose sleep over anything, it would be more that. And I don't know if that's something I can know. Yeah. I would just say with my own experience, not that it's going to be anything like your daughter's, but for my experience, and my mom was 38, but like I said, back in the 80s, she may as well have been 95 because everyone's oh, like, yeah, whoa. Absolutely. Because you couldn't do this even exactly. Just that my mom had my brother at 35 and there's no way that science wasn't there. There is no way that my mom could have had a baby at 51. It just, even just one generation ago, that was just not possible. Yeah. But I know for me, I felt like the only thing that was difficult, but maybe kids feel this way about their parents anyway. I was an only child. I still am. I don't know why I say was, but I still am an only child. It still is me. Um, But I had a hard time thinking my, because my mom was one generation out from my friend's parents that she, but she also wasn't enlightened, right? So she's a super strict parent and all that stuff. So um, I thought that maybe if I had a younger parent that maybe I could do the cool things or go to do the whatever. And, or like she would understand that this is okay, that this isn't like horrible. Like for me, that's what I thought about when I felt like there's this generation gap between my like friends, my peers, parents and my own parents. Cause my dad was 42 when um, I was born. So he was in his forties. Yeah. And then my mom was 38. And so I remember thinking like, oh, if you just like would understand, but I think all kids kind of do that anyway. They all think that their parents don't understand anything and that we don't, you know, that they don't know anything. And you're like, oh, they're just so annoying, you know? So I, that was my experience with having a quote unquote older parent. I think that's really insightful. I think that, um, cause I can remember thinking about my, my mom had me when she was 23, but when I became a teenager, I still saw she was completely, you know, out of touch and, you know, just like this, you know, old fogey or whatever. Um, so I, I can only imagine what my daughter was thinking when she's a teenager and I'm in my sixties. Um, so I'm sure there will be some of that. And I think that to, to some extent, every child, you know, feels that way about, about their parents and probably even more so, yeah, if the parent is older. So I, you know, we're going to, we'll cross all those bridges when we come to them. And uh, I think the, the bond, you know, is a big piece of that. I think if we have, you know, there's a secure attachment and not, and I'm not anyway saying that you, you didn't, your family didn't, I think. Oh no, it wasn't. (laughs) I will admit it right now. It was not, it was not. (laughs) This is for another day and for another show, but I'm telling you right now, it was not. (laughs) Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I know infertility is a stressful time, and we often don't provide ourselves with enough self-care. One way to give ourselves a little more self-care is with Pranamat's acupressure mats. This is what you can do. 
give yourself about 20 minutes to lie down. And within those 20 minutes, this is what you're going to experience. There's going to be an increase in blood flow, a surge of endorphins, relief of muscular tension, and finally a euphoric calm of the mind and body. So if you're due for some unwinding after a long day, go to pranamat.com and check out their different massage mat sets. Because the 40 and Infertile Podcast is a Pranamat affiliate, 40 and Infertile Podcast listeners get a special offer by using the code 40 and infertile. That's the number four, the number zero, and A-N-D, infertile, I-N-F-E-R-T-I-L-E, all one word. And now back to our episode. (laughs) I'm going to keep it real. It was not pretty. Exactly. (laughs) I think that that's a piece of it. Um, And I think if we can have a, you know, that, really a good bond and a secure attachment um between us that you know i think we'll, we'll weather the storm but i think absolutely she's going to think i'm you know not cool and yeah i'm gonna yeah it won't it won't it won't even take that long probably by the time she, you know 10 i'm not gonna be not cool um but you yeah, know what I, I think what i think too is that because we're in this space in this generation where a lot of us are having children older i it may not be that big of a deal because that may become more of a norm than finding that your peers' parents were 20 or whatever. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, there's more than um, like it's a million you know, children now that have been born through IVF. So it's not, and that isn't all due to age, but a big uh, chunk of that is par- um, people having children becoming parents later in life. So... She's not going to be the, not only is she not going to be like the only kid in her school who is an, you know, an IVF baby or you know, has an older parent. She's not going to be the only kid in her class who's an IVF baby or has an older parent. So I do think it, to some extent it's not going to be quite the same as like our generation if we had older parents because there are so many people having children later in life now. And I think that, yeah, I absolutely think that's going to be a, an aspect of it. And I think a lot of us too who go, through IVF or infertility are, what's the word? Um, We're very meticulous. (laughs) We're very type A plus. We're very structured. And so I think a lot of us, and I I know this because, you know, from a lot of these warrior stories I do, a lot of us say the same thing. We're planners. We're very like strategic. We like things to be a certain way. We like create lists and da, 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 da. And so we, I think, tend to be that way. And so we try to find every possible solution. We overthink and want to make sure that we have an answer for, answer for every possibility that may or may not come up. And w- what I'm hearing that you say is that um, maybe that that's okay if, you know, you don't, you don't know all the answers. Maybe it's okay if um, you're not quite sure what the future will hold and you kind of just, you know, roll with the punches and kind of trust yourself and, um, you know, continue to do the work and continue to do, you know, everything that you need to do to make sure that this is still the right path for you. And as long as it still feels like it's the right path for you, um, I I forget there's... um, I think uh, her name is Marie Forleo. She says like everything is workoutable or something like that. She says something like that. And um, 
But I, I get the anxiety of making sure it's the right path because it's like, that's so hard to think about. But, you, you know, we go through all these questions in our mind. What if this? What if, how would I feel if like some kids, you know, parent in class has some opinion about me being over 40, whatever. And what does that mean? And how will I feel if you know, I see all these different parents and I know that I look different or older or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, I think those are all valid things to kind of explore, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day that we have very little to no control over that. And I think that we can get into what, you know, I call like analysis paralysis, right? Where you just like, you can kind of go down the rabbit hole of that and it just, it wastes so much time and energy. Um, so there's a, uh, a theorist, theorist, actually a pediatrician, Winnicott, who's the one you may have heard, like the good enough mother. Um, and that was, you know, in the 50s or 60s. So that was very, you know, uh, gender stereotypical. I'd say like the good enough parent. But the theory was like, you, ju- you just need one. If you have one good enough, and you don't even perfect, if you have one good enough parent, like the kid's going to turn out okay. And I think kind of being a family therapist and seeing lots of families and lots of different ways that families look and the different structure and the dynamics in the families. You don't have to be perfect. You don't even have to be anywhere near perfect. And you, you don't have to have two perfect parents to be a healthy, happy, well-adjusted, you know, human being who's able to attach securely to other happy, well-adjusted human beings. And so I uh, just try to remind myself of that. And I said, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And she's amazing. She's she is. She's healthy. She's happy. She's well adjusted. I mean, I, you know, two years. We'll see. And yeah, she's it's to twenty. But yeah. I think you just yeah yeah. There's so much you can control, and there's so much that you can't control. I mean, some people who are you know even in families where they're genetically related to their parents have terrible relationships with their parents, and there's people who grew up in homes with all the money you could ever have in the whole wide world and every opportunity in the whole wide world and still never find that they are successful or never find that they are happy or whatever. And there's just so many components to being a healthy, happy person. Um, So I can see that, but I can also see wanting to control because in this space, you can't control anything, right? There's so little things like you can control with IVF and infertility where you feel like you want to grasp anything you can control. Yes. And then just like maybe not fixate, but get pretty dang close to fixate and just like, you know, because you're right. So much of it is out of your control and it's so such a disorienting, disorienting experience because your own body is out of your control and so I think that you're right. So any little thing that you feel like I can control this, you want to grab a hold of that and to kind of use that to hopefully right you or steer you or, um, so absolutely we do that. And then I think there's also the kind of, you know, take a breath and take a step back and, um, realize it's, it's all, you know, workoutable as you say. Yeah. And I, I think you're right with particularly with the, um, the genetic piece. And I think that's part of maybe what helped me, um, let go of that without um, like becoming so attached that it just um, kind of turned me upside down. Um, it, it didn't. And I think that's part of the reason why it didn't was because being a family therapist and seeing so many families and different constructions of families, I have seen and worked with families that share 
all their genetics and there's emotional cutoff and there's estrangement. And I've worked with families that there's no genetic commonality and they should be teaching a course on secure attachment. Like it just, I've seen it like play out in real life and it just, it's not a one-to-one correlation. And so I think that was something for me that having that experience, it helped me kind of let go of that and not um, worry quite so much about what was that bond or that attachment going to look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's another thing that pops up too for people who do use donors is whether or not they'll bond with their child. There's that fear, right? Because there's, if it's, if it's not that genetic thing that's tying you to the child, then what is and how do you create that relationship when there isn't? Because, you know, in, in the traditional sense, you, see yourself in your little human. You're like, I made this and this is a piece of me and this is why, you know what I mean? I think that's how we're um, trained to think and feel like, oh, this is a little piece of me and so therefore I must and this is how we create that connection and bond. So did you did you have any of those concerns? Were you ever worried about that? I think so, sure, um, initially, because I think like you're saying, that's such a primal thing um, that... I think anybody would think about that. And I think that we all have that desire, that really kind of primal desire to pass on our genetics to our offspring. And so when you realize that's not going to happen, that there's this kind of shock and awe about that. And so I think there is like, oh, what does that mean? And what does that mean going forward? And um, and again, I think luckily having the experience that I did working with families, it helped me because I had seen that in real life that again, it wasn't a one-to-one correlation. And another thing for me, um, again, just eyes on the prize. And if this is the way I can be a mom, this is the way I'm going to be a mom. And in one way, maybe the age um, was a benefit in that because I did not have a lot of time to kind of spend on, here's my plan A, I want to spend a year trying to achieve that. And then if that doesn't work, I'll move to plan B, I'll spend a year on that. I didn't have that kind of time. So pretty quickly, I had to invest in uh, a plan. And I had to be really honest with myself about if it's feasible or not. And if it's not, I got to detach, I got to grieve it, I got to let it go. And I got to invest in plan B and move on. Or I'm not going to this is not going to happen. And so in some way, the kind of the pressure of the age um, maybe helped me to, I I don't have that kind of time. I better move on. So if this is the way I can be a mom, it's by using donor DNA. Um, And from experience, I will tell you, at the 5 a.m. feeding, it doesn't matter whose egg it is or whose sperm it is. Like you, you get up and you, you stumble in the dark to the bassinet, and you, you're a mom, and you do what moms do, and it doesn't matter whose egg or sperm it is. And do you ever find that? And I don't know. This is probably just something that like pops in my mind when I'm thinking about this. Is like I wonder what my response will be sometimes if I if I do use a donor that they're like, oh, she looks like you or whatever, you know, the things that people will say, right? Yeah. And then, and then like, yeah. well, actually, this is a donor. Or actually, we used a dual donor because, you know, like, <laughs> like you kind of wonder what that conversation will go like or if you just don't have the energy and then you just say, yeah, exactly. thanks. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. like, how does, what does that look like? It's both. It's both. And that goes back to that, like, there's no perfect 
way to, you know, I just, I'm not the ambassador for IVF. So there are days that we pass somebody in the, you know, the, in the grocery store, in the cart, she's in the cart. And they're like, oh, she's so cute. She looks like you. Thank you. And we go and get our cereal. And then, there, you know, there's other time where, because she's really, um, both the donors were tall. And she's really tall. She's <laughs> really tall. And so I am not. And so sometimes when people will say something like, oh, she must get her height from her dad. And I say, no, she got it from the donor. I want to be like, oh, and I. <laughs> so I say no. She's the don- yeah donor babies. Like no, the the donors are really, both the donors are really tall. Um, here's the other thing about that. I don't want her to ever feel like there's something abnormal about her origin or something that is something that we don't want to talk about or needs to be kept. You know, there's a difference in secrecy and privacy. And so if there's something about her origin that she wants to say because private to our family. That's fine, but there's there's no secrecy about this. There's no reason for there to be any secrecy about this. So we, you know, that saying, you know, tell early and often. We, I'm having a conversation about it. She's there or not there, and even though um, she's not intellectually going to get it at this age, what's coming across is that I say it in the exact same tone of voice. You know, oh no, she gets her height from the donor. As I say, we're having chicken for dinner, or you know, it's just part of the narrative of our family. Yes. Um, and so speaking of that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about language and what type of language to use. So, you know, uh, there's so much, I don't know, I'll use the word debate. <laughs> I don't want to use the word controversy. I'll use the word debate. There's a lot of debate about verbiage and uh, terminology on, do you, would you, do you, call the donors donors do you call them biological parents do you talk like what what will you see yourself using with your own child yeah i think that um language is really powerful and language is really important and i think because um the more of us that are doing this now the more of our stories are getting out there and so we're in a um a phase where we're actually we're working that out you know this hasn't been something that's been talked about like there's a really um accepted you know language for heart disease or, you know, so we're still kind of in the fact where we're doing that. Um, and I have heard, you know, um, parents who have donor conceived children who, you know, use both, who some use donors, some use biological, you know, father or, you know, mom. Um, some say it is their biological child. Some say it's not their biological child. For me, um, I used to, she is my biological child because I gave birth to her, I carried her, I nursed her, or tried to, um, my milk did come in. Um, but she is of my biology. So they put a you know, microscopic clump of cells and my body grew a human being. So to me, she's not my genetic offspring, but she's my biological child. And I do refer to the donors as donors, the egg donor and the sperm donor. Um, but I completely have respect for people who use, I think everybody has the right to use the language they want for their family. And so I don't, I try not to make assumptions that my language is the correct language or what's another family's going to use. And um, I just ask, I think, you know, they'll, they'll tell you there's no harm. I, or in asking, so I just say, you know, I we use this language, but you know, um, what do you what do you say? How do you refer to your family? They'll tell you. Just ask. Yeah, I think that's important to say too. I, that's actually a really nice way 
to talk about that or to kind of bring up that experience because um, I think, like I said, there is a lot of debate on what type of language to use. And it may differ from family to family. And some people might feel way more comfortable with using, um, you know, certain words and other families may feel better about using other words. And I think that's a really great way to kind of phrase it is just to ask whatever people would prefer. Yeah, what they prefer. To, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's so... I don't have any investment, you know, in any particular language. Like I, we use what fits, you know, us for our family and if it's something else fits another family, but I don't have any, you know, big, I'm not married to any particular type of language. Like whatever they want their family to be referred to is what, how I'm going to refer to them. I know we kind of touched on this a little bit. We kind of talked about the pros and cons, but, and I know we have nothing to compare this to um, because this is your experience, but you know, what is it like parenting over 50? Like, do you find yourself just thinking, Oh my God, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think most parents will say anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't have the, I didn't have a child in my twenties or thirties. I can't, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, say what, how it would be similar or different, but absolutely I'm tired. Um, Like, do you think your lens as a 50 year old is because of the life experience and everything? Do you think the lens is I know you said you're a better parent now than you would have been in your 20s, but do you think because of all the um, things that you've seen in this time, you're more lenient or do you think you're more strict or do you think you're more easygoing? Like, do you think it's offered you the opportunity to see things completely differently? Yeah, I think that, um, so, you know, a lot of the research that has, not that much has been done on this area, but the research that has been done on this area says if you're going to go one way or the other, actually, Underparenting just a little bit is better overall than overparenting, being like that the helicopter parent. And I am super type A, and yeah. So in my twenties, I would have been like a military helicopter parent, and I think now I'm I'm not. And part of that is just again life experience and wisdom. Um, and part of it's being 50 and being tired of being like, okay, if you, if you want to do that, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and I just wouldn't have been like that at 25. I would have been like, you know, now we're going to do this and this. And so I'm not a helicopter parent. And I'm also, while I still am somewhat that, I'm going to always be somewhat that because that's just innate to me. I'm not as much of a perfectionist or kind of control freak as I was historically and certainly would have been as a parent like in my 20s it would have been yeah m- yeah much more of that kind of wanting to control and make everything perfect and I just you know as a single parent in my fit that's not going to happen so there's no point in my trying to you know force that to happen it's not going to happen and it's it's not it wouldn't serve either of us well either and I mean let's kind of talk about the grieving process I mean I think the downside, kind of like you said, in doing this later is that you didn't really have time to like process everything. It was like, go, 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 right? You moved from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, But as far as grieving goes, I mean, there's so much to talk about, you know, grieving a big change in your life, um, you had to move, you know, the end of your marriage and then, um, you know, grieving your genetics. Um, what do you say or how do you, what do you think is the best thing 
for people to do who are struggling with these or maybe who are facing these challenges? What are some things that were helpful for you? Because unfortunately, you didn't get a chance. And and maybe that was a good thing, right? That you didn't get a chance to sit. But then, you know, for some people like me, I'm really good at burying everything because that it's it's a really great solution if you just yeah, stick a it's bunch a of stuff strategy. over. It will Absolutely. never backfire ever. Um, but, you know, so like, let's say you do, you don't spend the time working through all that because like you, if you're like, I don't have the time to mess around with this, I just got to keep going. And then when, you know, if you're able to take a breath or maybe if you struggle in the middle of this and you're finding yourself because you had to rush, 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 and then it's all coming up. What do you, what's the best thing to do? How would you approach that? What would you recommend? Check in with yourself and pause and take a break when you're, body or your heart like tell you that you need to do that um it's certainly this was this is not the ideal uh way to you know time time frame to do this if i had had more time after the we had come to that realization and we had gotten divorced i would have given myself a big chunk of time to really just sit with that and process that and grieve that loss before i you know forged ahead with the, you know, the infertility treatment, the pregnancy. But again, that just wasn't, um, biologically, that wasn't possible. It wasn't going to happen. Um, so, you know, you can't, um, you can't circumvent grief. You can't like outsmart it. You can't jump over. It's, you're going to do it. You can postpone it, but you're going to do it. So there was um, grieving that happened kind of, you know, at the same time that I was, you know, going through all this. So it was this odd experience of having um, really big highs and, you know, really low lows. And again, I think just, you know, the experience of um, working with people in their grief process. I also, I was a um, bereavement counselor with hospice for a couple of years, and that was some of the most profound work I've ever done. And I learned so much about grief and the grief process and was so, um, it sounds odd, but really blessed just to, to have the privilege of being a part of so many people's profound grief journeys that one grief is a really, it sounds odd, it's a natural, grief is really a natural process. Our beings, we know how to grieve. Our problem is we don't know how to get out of our way. So I think if we can get out of our own way, the grief process is a natural process. It will happen. And so if you can give yourself the time and space, if you can take a break or a pause and give yourself some time and space to sit with that, I think that's on Even though, again, that's talking about um, spending time in a place that's really uncomfortable, which is hard for a lot of us to do. Um, I, th- I still, I believe, honestly, that's the best thing that you can do is give yourself time and space and just let yourself grieve. Um, I will tell you when I, because um, I had said earlier, like the when I look back, the, the hardest part was actually the, the part where I had to wait. I couldn't do anything. And during that time, I actually did step back and take a break for several months. And I didn't do anything, look at anything, think of anything. Um, infertility, IVF, baby, I just, I did not do anything. And I really just let myself grieve the situation that I was in and that the way I was 
going to do this and all of the things that were sad about that and the things that were being lost in that. And I really gave myself time um, to, to really grieve the losses of that. And so and maybe in some way, looking back, even though it was the more um, difficult time, maybe that was a really um, positive thing in a way that I had to pause and wait because it gave me, in a sense, it kind of forced me to, to sit still because I was kind of going, 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 moving forward, forward, forward. And it, it forced me to sit still for a minute. And uh, so I, I had the time and space to just grieve a lot of that. And what do you think is the most, like, what are the most helpful tips for people, um, whichever path they take, single, not single, older, not older. And what do you, what do you wish you knew, uh, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you kind of started all of this or did all of this? Yeah. Um, what I wish I knew, I wish I had done was started to do my own work a decade before. Yeah. I could have had her at 41 instead of 51. Um, and so, because I really believe that because what we're talking about is getting to the core of who you are as your authentic self and being honest about that and honest about what living that person's life looks like. And if you can do that, you're going to save yourself a lot of you know, time and heartache. And so for me, what looking back, what I wish that I had been able to do was to do that work and that process a lot earlier than I had. Um, so because that's... The goal, I think, for me is um, to help people find peace around whatever that decision is. If you do that work and you realize that your core, what is authentic to you, is to be a nurturer or parent in some way, let's figure out how to, how to do that, how to let you do that. If you find out that it's actually not, that that's maybe somebody else's story or expectations that you've put, taken on yourself, let's look at that. Let's get really honest about that. Let's look at that. And maybe that's what you find is, oh, you know what? This was somebody else's path for me. This wasn't my path. And I've had that both with um, clients in my personal life. I have a, a friend who I um, really kind of supported. She went through a process of really investigating this and looking at becoming a single parent by choice and doing IVF. And through her exploration of that came to the decision that it actually, it was a desire of hers, but it was not that core primal, this is my authentic self desire. And she opted to not take that journey, not take that path. And she's at peace with that because she took the time to find out what she really wanted. So I think do the work to find out who you are at your core, your authentic self, what that person's journey is, and then make peace with that. You know, and sometimes because, you know, I get some questions for um, some women who are older, who are trying to decide, you know, older, I mean, you know, 40 and above, who are trying to decide because, you know, if they don't have a partner, they, they're trying to decide, is this single parent thing the right thing for me? And like you, don't have a lot of time to really process and sit through. So if that's the case, is there a way to, ex I mean, it's, you know, not optimal, right? Yeah. To accelerate that process or does that just mean that you 
go to therapy a lot more often? <laughs> like, what does what does that look like? To, because if you're, let's say, 41, 42, and if you're hell bent on using your own eggs, right? If you're hell bent on using your own genetics, which is not a bad thing, um, but I'm just saying, if you're just like, I really want to push my genetics to the max and max and really see if I can do that. And then like you at, at 50, it's you're right on that cusp and it's like a make or break kind of thing. Then what do you say to those folks who are, you know, who need to process that? Like, how do you, knowing that you don't have a ton of time to make this decision or to kind of work? Because it is true. Like there's so much that goes into all of this and figuring out like why and if and all that stuff. And then even harder if you have no support, if your family or friends don't support you and think that it's a terrible idea and, you know, or whatever, you should just wait or, you know, whatever the case may be. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I think what, again, like your support system and I'm a big fan of, you need um, like cheerleaders. Uh, you, you don't need drains. You don't need people who are going to kind of drain that energy. You need people who are going to build that up so you don't have to tell anyone this is your story your journey you're not obligated to tell anyone anything um at any time tell the people who are going to support you what you want support with at the time that you need the support so get the support try to be as honest as you can with yourself if you were leaving this life tomorrow would you be able to make peace with the life that you've led without trying every possible way to become a parent? Or would you not? Would you have to be fighting and screaming like, my work here is not done. I can't, I can't go. Ask yourself that question and just allow yourself to sit with it and be honest with what the answer is because there's a lot of societal pressure put on us both ways there's a lot of pressure put on women to bear children to be mothers to have children and then once you get to a certain age there's a lot of pressure to not do that you know everybody's got an opinion and lots of people think that if you haven't done it by a certain age you miss the boat you just you're not too bad so sad yeah scientifically exactly can or not you, yeah, you don't have that right anymore. So it's, again, because you're the one that's going to be doing that, whatever this is. You're either the one that's going to be pregnant or going to be adopting, going to be raising the child, or you're going to be the person who's made the decision not to become a parent and living the life of what that looks like, the child-free or childless, depending on you know your perspective on that. You're the one living that life, nobody else. So you've got to do this for yourself not for someone else to build support and have a, whether it's again, as a therapist, as a coach, get into some kind of, uh, where you're doing that interpersonal work. Cause I really believe that's the, the bottom line is you have to find out what the answer to that question is for you. And even if it, again, even in partner relationships, right? Even, even if it's your partner saying, I have to be a parent and you're thinking I have to not be a parent. You you have to do this for what is right for you. I didn't think about the reverse. I did not think of like the converse of I must be is that what if it's I can't be. Yeah, that's so true. That that could totally be the case too. And um you know fighting the societal expectations that you have to 
also. Because, you know, th- that's the hard thing too, is that because society does feel a certain way with people who are childless, with women in particular who are childless, right? There's always the expectation of like, oh, it's because something was wrong. When when someone chooses not to, and they're like, no, it just wasn't for me. It's like, oh, you know, like they have an opinion about that. And um, I was talking about this with someone who was childless in one of the earlier interviews. And she said, here's the thing. They're going to have an opinion about everything. They're going to have an opinion whether you breastfed or formula fed, <laughs> exactly. whether it was C-section or it was exactly. a vaginal birth, whether it was like, you know. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about all of that. <laughs> like there is a lot of judgment. Like there's so much judgment anyway that you're just like. Yeah, there's so much. Yeah, and I. I had not considered those things like I, cause you know, I, my vision is so narrow at this point. It is just here is where I am. Exactly. Sometimes it has to be because this is, you're, this is so hard. You have to, you have to be able to kind of focus and shrink down and do it once, just one day at a time, one step at a time. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that's like a, you know, the answer people want to hear, but that's that's the that's the answer. You've got to get to the core of what the answer to that question is for you, and nobody else can tell you that. You can have someone to help support you, and you can have someone to lend you expertise and help guide you to that answer. That's it. That's what's going to tell you to do it or not. You got to get down to that that core answer. And if you're going to do it as a single person, I will say. Um, be aware that the single parent um, phase of your life doesn't start when you have the baby. It starts when you get pregnant. If you're going to do this as a single mother by choice, you're a single mom when you get pregnant. You're so you know you're not <laughs> you're not getting the back rubs and the leg massages, the foot massages, and um, at the end of the day when your feet are swollen and you you can't say to somebody, yeah, can you make dinner tonight? Can you yeah, you know, you got to, you know, carry the laundry basket full of clothes at eight months pregnant yourself. You have to make the nutritious dinner because you're eating for two yourself. And so, yeah, you, you begin the single parenthood. Yeah. Before the baby gets here, when you get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important point to make, too. I think we I think think about the after part of it the most. Right. Like, OK, when like you said, when it's 2 a.m. and you're the only human in the house that can help with any of this. Although I learned something new today. There is such a thing called a night nanny. I did not know about this. Do you yeah. know about no, this? No, I had one. Oh. I, yeah, I do. I had one. Oh, yeah. I'm like, this Absolutely. is like news to me. I'm like, I did not know such yeah. a thing existed. <laughs> yes, it was some of the best money I've ever spent because I did have a C-section. I was recovering from a C-section um, and... Yeah, I had to have, I was so lucky that my family was there for me for the first like five weeks I had family. Um, but you're still, re- I mean, it seems like you're having, you had an open abdominals surgery, so you're still recovering. At, you're not fully recovered at five and weeks. And it feels like your insides um, want to pour out. Because I used to work in labor and delivery and every woman who tried to get up was like, oh my God, my insides are going to pour out. I'm like, I promise you they're not going to pour out. <laughs> yes. You have to brace your belly when you first get up. They're like, no, I can't. It's it's all going to come ripping open. I'm like, I promise you, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> it's not like it will not happen today. Yes. Yeah, so if you, yeah, I, I am all for the night nanny. Thank God for the night nannies. Yeah. 
yeah, but yeah, so um, single parenthood starts the, the day you get pregnant. I mean, even like even the appointments, you go to the appointments by yourself. It's not like exactly. you bring home an ultrasound picture for like, right. you know. Exactly. Yes. And I'm going to have, yeah, and I don't want my friend to be like, I listen to your podcast and I went and that's true. I had a great support system and I had friends that went with me to appointments and I had friends that came and helped and I had family that helped. And I also was home alone a lot because nobody lived with me a lot. My family's on the East Coast and there were appointments that I went to by myself. And yeah, so just, yeah, it's not just something to, you know, just to be aware of and think about that phase of being kind of single, doing that part single as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's so important. Um, So there are some questions that were submitted. So let me pull those up Um, because these are always fun to do too. Um, Okay. So... Let's see. Okay. The first uh, question is, how should you politely confront family members or loved ones who share their unsolicited advice thinking this is not a good idea? You don't have to be nice. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be polite. Um, You don't have to listen to their unsolicited advice. Um, And or you can let they feel if they feel a need. This is like it's kind of crawling back on that. Like when you I'm 50. I'm tired. It's like, fine. if you want to like to say that, fine. It's not, again, I'm the one that's going to be pregnant or not. I'm the one that's going to raise the baby. By all means, give me your, your opinion, your unsolicited advice. And I'll say, I can see how someone could have that opinion on a viewpoint. I can totally see how you might have that viewpoint. And then you go on and do whatever you're going to do anyway, because they're not going to be there at 3 a.m. with, you know, your pregnant and having to get up to pee for the 20th time or after the baby's born and doing the three they're not doing this that so yeah fine you go ahead lay it on me you can totally see how someone could have that viewpoint and could you would it be appropriate to maybe like if it's this repeated offender right let's pretend it's i don't know yeah, like say a mother-in-law a yeah, or something that's a different, and that's, that's a different and thing. you want to just set the boundary to say you know thank you for what you have said or thank you for sharing but really in the future i'd like to not have this conversation anymore yeah, if it's or, that's a different situation if it's somebody that is repeatedly um somebody that's a, kind of close to you and is repeatedly giving you again because you need cheerleaders not uh you know detractors so absolutely you can say i appreciate you you know letting me know your feelings around it and you can even you know validate i know that you care about me and i know this is coming from a good place and maybe it is or maybe it's you know i know that you care about me yeah. and you give them benefit of the doubt <laughs> so i know this is coming exactly i know this is coming from a good place um but it's actually not helpful right now and i know that you're meaning to support me but it actually isn't feeling supportive it's actually making it more challenging for me to do the things that I need to do. Um, so yeah, I just really like, respectfully ask you to, to not, yeah, if I, you know, I'll ask you if I want something, you don't have to, really need to, to tell me. I mean, it's throughout this process, like, you know, not even just this, but, um, even just IVF in general, some people have really strong opinions about, IVF, like some family members have really strong opinions about whether or not you should do it and whether or not, you know, so, I mean, this applies to any of those 
questions or any of those people who repeatedly Absolutely. are repeatedly give you that yeah yeah negative and, energy know, there's a um there's a, a cultural aspect to this too right the different things are held in different you know ways in different cultures so it's not just an across the board this is what you should do with issues what you should not do you have to take that cultural um aspect into consideration and i think that's again where the coming um from of the place of giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying something like i know that you care about me and i know that you're you're trying to be supportive um, i just want to let you know that right now it just doesn't feel that helpful and i'd appreciate it if you know we didn't have this particular conversation you know again um yeah there's a lot of opinions out there yeah <laughs> There always is, right? And then how you raise your child, and then how you whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's for, that's another episode. We'll save that for later. <laughs> um, okay, this next question. I actually really like this question. I think it's a cool question. Um, did being a therapist change you as a mom, and did becoming a mom change you as a therapist? Yes, absolutely to both. Um, so did being a therapist change me as a mom? Yes, a little bit we touched on, I think, um, different ways, both the, having um, the kind of a knowledge and experience around the grief process, because going through infertility and IVF the way that um, I was able to have my daughter, thankfully, but there was a lot of grief in that, and so I think that helped. Um, I think, the, again, like seeing all the different makeups of families and realizing what really matters and what doesn't play such a big part, I think that helped. Um being a therapist myself, I knew absolutely without a doubt I was going to be in therapy every single week when I, while I went, no matter how long it took, I was going to, and then miss a session. Um, I think that helped. And then for the, like on the other side of that, has being a mom changed how I'm a therapist? Absolutely. For one, I was a therapist kind of a, in general practice before. And then going through this process, I was like, no, this is, this is where, this is my world. This is my mission. This is my passion is to support and help guide and support women going through this to help them find peace around whatever outcome and decision they make. So it has absolutely impacted the kind of therapist that I am. Do you still, do you work with couples in this space too, who are trying to navigate that? Or is it primarily just the individual or? Either because um, it's, there's a whole added, you know, aspect to it. If it's, you know, a couple that's, you know, I'm sorry, like kind of the downsides of being, you know, the single, the upside is I didn't have to deal with anybody else's, you know, anything fertility experience <laughs> or yeah. Repro yeah, reproductive journey. It was just mine. Um, and when you're a partner, obviously that's a big, part of it because you're each unique individuals. And even though you're going into the same thing, you're going to have different experiences of it. And both of those are, you know, to be honored equally. And so there's a big piece about there's the, you know, the two individual people, and then there's the unit, the couple. And so that's a big piece of, uh, of a reproductive journey is how that impacts um, the individual people and the couple relationship itself. And what about like, say children, like say, you know, a couple has just uses a donor or even a single mom who uses a donor and, you know, they want to bring a child into therapy sessions to really kind of work through this as they continue to grow and develop and really make sure it's a safe 
space for them to explore these questions or explore how to communicate about this experience. Is that something that you would do or do you stay strictly with adults? Um, you can do, uh, do family therapy as well. I think primarily, um, and that's because here's the thing, it starts like before the child is here. You start, you talk about how you're going, how your family is going to address this and talk about this because um, the, 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 there's lots of ways that you can do there. I think the thing not to do is you don't, you know, have the conversation on their 18th birthday and you hand them the folder without, right? That's what, like, that's what you don't do. Um, so, the conversations start before the child even gets here about how you talk to your the child and the family, how what the narrative is around that, how to use age appropriate language um, to kind of the different developmental stages they go through. So how much they can kind of you know handle at different ages. Yeah, so absolutely, I think family therapy uh, can be a big benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're not partnered, you know, I think even struggling through finding the right language for you and how you want to, or finding the way, right way to share that story as they grow in a supportive way that, like you said, does not stigmatize the experience or stigmatize the history behind it so that they don't feel like this. Cause I think that makes a difference. Like, you know, like I said, when I interviewed Emma, her experience is much different than, you know, a bunch of other people's donor experiences. And I think it's because like you said, it was not stigmatized in any way. It was always like, this is what happened and this is how you came to be and this is your story. And it was always out there in the open and there was um, there was no differences in how they would have told that story versus the story of her siblings. Like, Right. It was, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so that, because that, that, you know, is the ultimate goal is that the child feels completely held in their, you know, experience the same as the, the parent does. And so, it's just a work around how do you, how do, what does that look like? How, what language do you use? There, you know, there are books that actually, you know, I have books, my daughter and I read, they're on the bookshelf with all the other books. Some nights we read them, some nights we don't. It's again, it's just part of our daily lives. And then it's also kind of not part, cause there's like, I don't go around thinking, <clears throat> you know, constantly they're like, Oh, she's a donor conceived child. Oh, she's a donor you know, conceived child. It's, you know, it's only one kind of like, you know, something specific. And then it's like, oh yeah, because I was even, she had a, a point with a pediatrician. She was talking about like family history or something. And I'm giving her my family history. And then all of a sudden it hit, I was like, oh wait, she's a donor, like she's a donor baby. Like, wait a minute. And I was like, no, there's no family history in there. It, like literally that's, I, I gave her my family's history. And I was like, oh, that's how much it, yeah. That's how much impact it has on a daily basis. Yeah. 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 No, that's great to hear that. And, and I don't know if I ever, I guess, I guess I never thought past that or I just thought it'd just be this continuous floating thought in my head, like donor, 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 like, which is kind of silly, I guess. I mean, you're so right that it's not like it, every day you wake up, you're like, okay, hi, donor, baby, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good point. I mean, and it's so silly that I didn't think about that. Like I, you know, like it's not crossed my mind. Because when you're in the process of trying to make that decision of whether or not you're going to do that and what that um, brings with it, I think, you, I think that we think it will always be as um, kind of prominent, you know, for, yeah. exactly as prominent as it is in this moment. And it's appropriate that it's a, that prominent in this moment, but it, things will, it actually won't be like what's prominent now is potty training, 
right? Like (laughs) that's what's going on now. And, you know, so, and then it's going to be like, or eating something, just eat something. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's prominent now. So yeah, it will shift, but it's, it's, it was that prominent for me at the time that I was doing all that. Absolutely. And it should have been, that's a huge decision. So absolutely it was prominent, but it doesn't stay that prominent. Yeah. Going forward or forever. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good thought that I literally did not think of. But it makes sense what you said. Um, okay, so the next question is, do you have a male role model for your daughter? Mm, I do. Um, I have male uh, friends and I have um, my dad is her like male like, role model that she adores. And he's a wonderful, he was a wonderful father. He's a wonderful grandfather. And he's a wonderful uh, male model and I think that that's really important for her to have both the um the female energy and the male energy um in her life and she's yeah she's like head over heels for granddaddy and he is for her as well and then I think as she again ages in developmental stages um that will that will shift so there will come a time where it's gonna you know with children's lives like their peer relationships become really important and so I think it'll be important for her to have um, male peer relationships that are really healthy. And um, then as she you know, gets older, then it's going to be um, as she starts you know, to date. What does that look like? Does she you know, want to date males? Is she going to date females? It's, so as she develops and grows, like the, um, kind of the, real, the male role models will like, shift along with that. So right, right now it's granddaddy. Mm-hmm. And what about for people who maybe don't have, like, let's say they're a single mother by choice and they don't have a lot of male role models in their lives to share. Like, are there downsides to that? Or do you have any thoughts to that? Again, I think it comes back, like I was saying, you know, the lack of, like, you know, you've got one good enough parent. So if you have a really uh, healthy, securely attached male in your life that your child can bond with, Absolutely. Why wouldn't you do that? Absolutely. But if you don't have that, does that mean somehow your, you know, your child is at a disadvantage? No, no. You you can provide, and your whatever your system looks like, your partner or your friends or your family, your colleagues, you can they can provide all that the child needs. No, you don't have to have like the perfect like male role model so they'll grow up and be you know normal, whatever that means. No, they're not going to be in a disadvantage. And um, you did answer this earlier, but I'll let you kind of like summarize and put it all together. Um, But what are some of the pros of being a single parent at 50? Yeah. So I think um, like I'm not as kind of perfectionistic or like as much of a control freak as I was in my twenties and thirties and forties. Going through, through um, IVF treatment and fertility the way that I did, it like I said, it actually was a benefit in that uh, the timeline was kind of, you know, clip, clip, clip. I didn't have a lot of time to sit around and say, oh, I'm going to try this for this amount of time. It was like, okay, that doesn't work. I got to grieve that, let it go and move on. So in some sense, the, it helped in that way. Um, just the life wisdom and experience you have after living for, you know, 50 some odd years um, I think, I think helps. And to some extent, um, 
So I, while I'm still very active in my um, career and building my career, I think that there's a different energy around that in your kind of 20s and 30s. I'm not, you know, I finished with grad school. I got my license. I started my practice. Like, so I'm not having to do that at the same time. And yeah, and I will say, and again, not that it can't be done and not that the child's going to suffer if you're doing it that way necessarily. But I think for me, that was one of the benefits of being older, I had already kind of done, um, check those things off the list before I had my daughter. I mean, this is all really, really wonderful. And if anyone is struggling out there, how can they find you? How can they follow you? How can they work with you? What's the best way to get in contact with you? Or if they just have any questions about the experience of being, you know, an older parent or a single parent or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have the website is, uh, HarmonyCenterForWellness.com. And then it's the same for the, um, you can also reach me on Instagram and that's Harmony underscore center underscore for underscore wellness. Um, they can reach me there as well. And yeah, ask me. And yeah, kind of an open, an open book about it. Ask me. I'm, I'm really happy that I, I did. I have, I have any regrets about it. And I'm also really realistic about the things that are um, difficult and the things that are, you know, that are great, they're easy. And like, I have to be honest, I think um, as someone who's been in this space as the patient, having someone to talk to that understands what is all involved is really nice. And I know I've said this on other episodes before, but when you have to spend 10 minutes of your 50 minute appointment explaining what an egg retrieval is or what a transfer is like or something like that. You're like, I, this session is $150. And I just spent yeah, exactly. 10 minutes up it. Explaining. 45 of it on, yeah, do, <laughs> definitions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, it's just, and it's nice when someone just gets it. You know, when, if someone tells you, like, you know, in your, it, like, they don't have to, uh, like, explain, like, what is this SMBC stuff? Like, what does single mom by choice mean? And what is involved with that? Like, because you've been through it, you're living it. And, or like, tell me about an egg retrieval, or tell me about what a transfer is like. And what about the transfer protocol? Or the, the, like, devastatingly painful two week wait that so many people go through. You know, like, you don't have to explain the two week wait. You know what I mean? Because then you, you get the two week wait because you've been through the two week wait. But for those who have not, and you have to explain what that means, it sometimes um, makes it a little bit harder, you know, to to know. But when you have someone that has that has that experience and that connection, you don't have to spend your time really, you know, going into that. Which I think, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there is a um, a certain level of uh, empathy or understanding that you know, comes with having gone through a, a similar experience. And absolutely that old saying, you know, waiting's the hardest part. So I, yeah, I get it. Like, I know what it's like to have to make these difficult decisions. I know what it's like to have to have had a complete vision of something and have to let that go and to have to grieve that and to have to open up for the possibility of this. Or grieving the genetics. Exactly. And open yourself up to the possibility that there will be a new vision that at some point you will be able to invest in as much as you had the one that you're now letting go and grieving. That's yeah, that is, I, I agree. I think it helps if somebody has been, you know, has done that themselves because I'll tell you, so 
being a therapist does not, um, it, it doesn't, grief, does, you know, it, the loss, it doesn't hurt any less. It's not any quicker. It's loss is loss. Grief is grief. Pain is pain. It's, there's no, you cannot outsmart it. doesn't matter what, how many diplomas you have on the wall or what field they're in. When you had a vision of how you wanted something to be and you held that so deeply and you have to let that go, that, that feels the same. Yeah. And I, I mean, like we didn't even touch on that. <laughs> you know, like we didn't even touch on like what that feels like and what, what that experience is like. But it, that's so true that if you, ha- you have not gone through this struggle where, and I, I can only speak for me where, where it feels like, um, a story or a vision or a future has been stolen from you, you know, when it feels like it's been stolen and you feel robbed of that experience that everyone else gets to have, that's hard to explain to someone that has not experienced it if you're not infertile. Like if you're infertile, then I feel like like those, if you're infertile and then you're like, oh, I get that. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's this unspoken. Yeah. It connection is. or something, it's, you know? Um, yeah. You, you, nobody, and here's the thing, like the first time an OBGYN ever even said to me, do you think you want to have kids? Do you want to ch-? Well, I was 40. I was already 40 by the first time I was asked, like, do you want to like, you know, explore your fertility? Um, I mean, we should be asking that question to like women who are like 20, 25. Do you, you, you at least have a baseline, right? Because if you don't even do anything until you're 40, you don't even have a baseline. You don't even know what your fertility looked like when you were in your 20s. So we just assume everybody, nobody assumes they're infertile. Everybody assumes they're not. Right. That the opposite. So, yeah. Exactly. The opposite, that you're fertile. And so when you're hit with that, there's whether you realize it or not, there's a vision that you've had this whole kind of scenario scene that's played out about what that phase of your life was going to look like. And so when you have the loss, it's not just the loss. Like today I found out I'm infertile and I can't have to do all these things, have a baby today. It's everything going forward. I thought it was going to look like this. I thought that was going to happen. I thought, and so all of that, is lost. All of that's taken away. So it's not just the right now in this moment. It's the the fantasy that you had about your life going forward, what all of that was going to look like. That's all gone in one fell swoop. Yeah. Yeah. And to have someone who understands that and, and like I said, the, the loss of genetics too, there's, you know, so many people who go through the grief of losing their genetics to explain what that means is hard to understand for someone who does not know what that feels like. Yeah. It's such a primal because it really, it is both, um, kind of emotional, but there's a, there's an actually it's not biological piece to that, right? We are every organism. That's kind of why, you know, we're here to procreate, to, you know, continue our species, right? We're actually, you know, we don't have to live to be not, you're supposed to live long enough to procreate. Right? That's, that's kind of the, right. As long as you live long enough, to, that's the point. So there is actually like a very primal biological kind of uh, desire need to pass on your genetic to see your genetics continue. And so when you're kind of faced with that told that that's not going to happen, that's, that's can be a big blow. And so to have somebody who's actually sat in that chair and had to make that decision. Yeah. I think that that's, yeah. Or come to terms with that. Yeah, exactly. There's a level of understanding there. I think you're right. Yeah. Cause that's a process. 
Yeah. We talked about a lot today. Thank you so much for being so open and so um, willing to share your story with everyone. I think it just makes such a difference to have other stories out there for people who are over 40 and doing this and, you know, finding that this is the best option for them and having no regrets, you know, like, I think that that's a great thing to kind of um, share. Doesn't mean it was easy (laughs) by any means. (laughs) No regrets doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that you're happy with where you are in life and, and your outcome, despite all the challenges, despite, you know, all the obstacles that came up. I am. Yes, I am completely totally like at peace with my journey and my decision and where I am in my life at this point absolutely you know I think that's wonderful and I'm so grateful that you're here to share that story I'm so grateful that you're here for other people who are maybe struggling through this path or maybe need to find you know which option is the best for them whichever it may be Um, and that's hard to do on your own you know it's hard to come to terms with that on your own Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful to have support system like you, um, who's been through it, who can kind of share what that experience is like and to really say, you know, like I survived, (laughs) I made it to the other side. And these are the reasons why it worked out for me. And then, you know, maybe even if some people are wavering and, you know, they decide, um, you know, that maybe children aren't the right choice for them, then helping them come to peace with that. I, I think that's the hardest part is coming to peace with it. And then um, if you do, then obviously you move forward much easier than if you continue to struggle with whatever choice you make. I think doing that work is just so important in the space. And I think we forget about that sometimes too, because absolutely, as a society, you know, I don't think we um, value uh, mental health work as much as we should. It's getting better. I think the last three years has forced us <laughs> Absolutely. Really focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. We're so focused on um, success and failure and there's, there's such narrow definitions of what that is. So I think for me in this world, success is again, finding out what is your true path, your true journey. And if it is not to continue work toward having a child or being a parent, then you and you can decide that and you come to peace with that, you are successful. You have not failed at becoming a parent. You have succeeded at becoming your authentic self. And congratulations to you. Well, oh my gosh, thank you so much. But um, I hope that you will able be able to come back in the future and we can talk more about parenting as you uh, go through more parenting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the challenges that may or may not come up as time goes yeah, on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think uh, there will continue to be questions on, okay, what happens after the first couple of years? What happens after the toddlerhood? Exactly. What happens when they hit middle school, you know, um, right. and what that's like and your experience and PTA and blah, blah, yeah. blah, and all the things that we kind of exactly. were trying to predict and all that stuff. So yes, for sure. So I hope to have you back. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful and we will talk soon. All right. Thanks, Victoria. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. 
Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.